Hey guys, thanks for stopping by the podcast. Today we have special guest Dr. Dan Elphick from the YouTube series Cult of Musicology. Dan, how's it going? Hi, I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Doing great. As we're getting into things, I was wondering what was life like for you before college, before university? as like what was your interest in music did you have a lot in grade school or secondary that why did you latch on to music that kind of stuff what a great question um so i I grew up um around the midlands of the uk i guess close to birmingham would be about the most famous city close by where i grew up think peaky blinders or something like that um (laughs) roughly where i grew up and sure, there are people playing music in the house and things like that. My earliest memory is of my grandfather who played organ in their local church, and I jumped off the pedals. I, I sat on the organ stool next to him and landed on the pedals during a service and got told off. <laughs> um, I'd had piano lessons since I was about seven, but it didn't really take. I was really only interested in music when I got into kind of rock and prog in my teens realized that I could play some of this stuff very, very easily on piano. Uh, And then when I got studying music, so that applied to me doing like carrying on with music studies in my, my late teens, 15 or 16. Then I realized that actually a lot of modernist and 20th century classical music had some of the energy of the kind of rock and prog that I was enjoying. So I went back to classical uh, in my late teens and I stayed there since, but with, with bits of rock and pop as well. In a weird way, I did the same kind of journey, did um, piano studies when I was like five to 10 kind of, but it was a lot of, yeah, I went to the lesson and didn't practice during the week and eventually it was like, okay, we can take a break from this. And then when I was 16, 15, somewhere in there, it was like, you know, I think I'm a lot cooler if I can play a couple chord progressions on the piano. And, you know, not really playing the piano, but like, okay, <laughs> I learned my little pop chord progression, one, four, five, and six chords. Like, okay, I can now play most pop songs on the radio. So, but I was also in band in high school, which was jumping into that for me. Um, so as you were looking at universities, I guess, what were you interested in studying? When I was uh, applying for universities, I was dead set that I was going to do a joint degree course. So actually, I applied for every course was music and history I wanted to do. So that that can limit, you know, there's only so many universities that offer that kind of course. Um, So that influenced everywhere I was going to look at. I'd interviewed at places like Cambridge as well in the UK. The choice I ended up going to was Keele University, a very small one, not very far away from, from where I grew up. So maybe that was a bonus as well. And just before I started, I think I decided that I was going to drop history. So all of those decisions (laughs) didn't matter anyway. And I just did music. I think I watched it once before, but I revisited this morning your video on like, or no, I didn't. It was the first time this morning because it's one of your newer videos of um, why do a music degree. And so I really enjoyed that and thought that, okay, yeah, there's a lot going on here. And... I don't know, I guess on the, in that video, you talk about jobs being like, even if your music degree, you don't end up doing something in the music field, that there's still a lot you could end up going and to go on to do. At least over here, especially we're in the rural South, 
for the most part. And so sometimes, I don't know, it seems like if you go get a music degree, you end up being a music teacher because that's kind of what you got. Yeah. I mean, my perspective is, um, so, I mean, I, I teach in a UK music department at Royal Holloway, University of London. Um, I've been there ne- nearly five years now. So I finished my doctorate 2016 and then very shortly after was very lucky to get this job. Um, and part of what I've done is to be the person who coordinates like careers, like when a uni department has, oh, here's a record company executive who's going to come talk to you about how you get a career in this line of work. So, so for a long time, it was my job to coordinate a our awareness of what our graduates go and do, but also the kind of talks that are useful to people currently studying to help them place. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think our statistics were that about fifty percent of our students went into music teaching. Mm-hmm. So, so that 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 sounds about familiar. Um, and then for the rest of them, it got really interesting. So maybe this is off the top of my head. Uh, maybe <laughs> ten to twenty percent got into sort of performance careers. Okay. And then everybody else, 30%, a, a solid amount. One of the things that I would never have guessed, you know, the, the, some sort of natural step after a music degree, but you realize that the kind of skills, the interests, the things you develop just apply straight away. My youngest brother, who's a wonderful musician in his own right, was making like all state, you know, top tuba player, other things like that, all four years through his high school career. And then still wanted to play in bands and things when he got to college, but was like, you know, super interested in animals. I should go do that. And so now, you know, he did his degree, got his bachelor's and finishing up his uh, doctorate now at Texas A&M. And so it, I guess for us, there's, if you get that music exposure a little bit earlier, it's like you jump a little bit sooner to what's that other field that might be interesting that I can apply these skills that I've learned to. Yes, ab- absolutely. One of the reasons I made that that most recent video of why study a music degree um, is, is it's kind of aimed as often quite a lot of that channel is aimed at sort of 16, 17 year olds people who are maybe thinking about the decision to make university. A lot of the videos are, what are the kinds of things you might hear said on your music degree? And this one of why study is me trying to reach people who, you know, are really great players, really great musicians, but in the back of their mind, uh, well, I need to go get my good law degree so I get started on my career. My kind of take on that video is, well, you can do both. <laughs> yeah. In that you can perfectly well go do your music degree and then go into the field of law. There's nothing to stop you. And also it's it's about your time. If you spend, you know, four years studying something, it might as well be something you love and are really passionate about. So I guess on that, my question is, and Livy, Adam, if any if you have a question about anything, feel free to jump in. Is it more normal for you guys to go to university after secondary school over there? Or is there more of a okay? You finished your general you studies, like well. go find a local job. Because here it's there's a mixture of both, but I guess there's been a trend towards like you need a college degree, but then what are you going to really do with that college degree? You've taken on debt to do that. Like, did it actually help you in the long run? So I mean, I mean, money and and fees is a big difference, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, so. When I did it, I still had to get a student loan, but everybody is entitled to get a student loan. It's provided by the UK government. When I did it, it was £3,000 a year. 
Uh, now, UK students, they pay £9,250 a year. So that's in a short space of time. I finished my degree, my, my first degree, 10 years ago. Um, and in that time, actually, not very long after, the fees went up this much. But I mm. know that that's very, very different to the US uh, scenario as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the fact that these these fees are these loans are state provided, you still pay them back, but the conditions of how you pay them back are very very different. They're linked to income, for instance. So when you below a certain threshold that a graduate earns, they don't have to pay back any of that loan until they earn above a certain amount. I made that decision personally. It wasn't made for me though. I said I'm not touching that <laughs> until I make money. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I think those financial conditions uh, make for different different circumstances. Yeah, obviously, um, about fifty percent of eighteen year olds in the UK choose to go to university. I think uh, that number has been the same for about ten years or so. Okay, but I don't know I don't what know our number compares. is, but your number feels higher. Yeah, I don't know why, but. And that could, again, just be working in Mississippi and Louisiana and the U.S. and knowing, like, okay, there's a lot of people that, okay, you got trained in, um, like, utility, electrician jobs, pipe welding, other things like that. And it's, okay, instead of going to college, you could just go work in a factory and make perfectly fine money, like, income. Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah. I think there's been there's been a recent pushback because of the because of the money involved here. Like it feels like in the last ten years, I'm hearing people say that more than I ever did before. Um, for a long mm, time, it yeah. was just go to college, just go to college, just go to college. And only in the last few years have I seen a lot of stuff like, well, hang on, make money instead. And the job market is so saturated with everyone having a college degree that it means a lot less now than it did when our parents were telling us to go to college, mm. at least over here in the U.S. So. Now everyone's like, you need a graduate degree if you want a job. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, um, like, I, I think I do a lot and I love doing and I value doing a lot is just informal chats with people thinking about applying for courses and stuff like that. They can mm-hmm. be my own students or recent graduates or anything like that. But a piece of advice I keep hearing now is people who finish their master's degree and they want to apply for a PhD course, they th- I've had people asking, do I need to already have a sort of published article and some academic texts just to mm. apply for a PhD. And in mm. my mind, the answer is no. Yeah. But apparently people are giving this advice quite often, which is a real change like uh, in the ball game. I was given mm-hmm. that advice for sure. I, I was going to say, we got that advice. I there live was. with a constant sense of guilt that I haven't written or submitted anything. I don't know, I don't know when I want to go get a doctorate degree. But I still live with a constant sense of guilt. Like, well, I can't get in right now if I needed to. Yeah, at least where we went to school, it was, I mean, our professor would have been thrilled if we had written something, uh, you know, close enough to like a real substantial article to submit it to get published. But that was less the push and more so, um, at least in our area, in the music theory field, it was all about conferences and presenting at conferences. And so 
every semester there was pushes to preparing for a conference, submitting for your conference, like mm. try any of them in any part of the country, basically, because um, that was sort of the step before getting published. And so even having that, mm-hmm. yeah, honestly, they kind of presented that as like, that's a must if you're going to go apply to get a yeah. doctorate, like you need to be active in conferences and stuff, but it's crazy competitive. It wasn't just that we want our school to have be have representation it's not just this would be good for you it was you're going to need this to get to the next stage of your career yeah wow i mean my take is that yes that kind of networking is helpful for your career Mm -hmm. but i've never given or heard that kind of advice of you need this before you apply for stuff or things like that and and really living what you were saying that like advices might be like i'd be thrilled of course and I talk mm-hmm. with master students like this is a great piece of work. You should think about publishing this. But my take isn't that like you need to publish something to like if, to to get to this next step. Mm. So that's really interesting. Right. Well, and um, I guess just from general theory, people that we've seen online that are all at least for the most part, I'm pretty sure located in the U.S. somewhere. There is um, maybe it's just a general discussion of like some of the toxic qualities of academia over here of there is a lot of pressure to, you need to go do this. You should be doing this, you know, like, like we, um, I don't remember if it was on air or off mic before we started, but talking about, okay, you know, I already have a lot of things on my plate. I I just can't make this paper that I need to write. I feel okay dropping it that I think there's more pressure to, well, you should go ahead and push to write that paper because who knows when you'll get another conference. Like you have to put it on your CV. Yeah. And so, so I've made this decision to pull a a conference from a paper next week. And I was kind of joking about this, but um, I'm also in a position where I just gave two papers within 24 hours this week at different conferences. I was very lucky to be invited to speak and things like that. And uh, sure. Yeah. I'm in a position where I, you know, I, I confidently feel like if I don't speak at this paper, nobody's going to sort of query me up on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, it's such a large six-day conference with something like 600 speakers. Um, I don't think my absence is going to be noted uh, or anything like that. So I just thought it was better for myself, if that makes sense. And, and yeah, next week is the start of my university term, the, the sort of orientation um, week. So, so part of my outlook in our music department is making sure our new students are matched with their instrumental teachers, quite an important job. Mm-hmm. And that takes up a lot of my time next week. So it was, do I, do I go with this big conference and do a, not, not quite do justice to what I'd like to speak about? Cause I have to worry and rush through a paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I recognize that actually I'm very lucky probably to be able to say that though to myself. Um, I think probably the advice I would kind of give though, I've met with people who are at the end of their their PhD, and perhaps they haven't published anything then, and that that perfectly often happens as well. Then you start saying, "Ah, oh, probably, probably then there's the re- there's the need." <laughs> yeah, of like, okay, you know, you got this far, but you might want to do one or two. But also, if you've worked and you know produced a fantastic thesis, it's going to be very easy to say, "Okay, well, chapter one should be a standalone thing, easily on itself." Right. Mm-hmm. You'd hope. Yeah, that was the most challenging part of the push that we got in our master's program was that we had we had our two years uh, that needed to culminate in a a full thesis. And I was like, well, I'm going to spend all my time on 
this thing. Like, I don't have time to spend a <laughs> yeah. semester off on a tangent that I'm not yeah. going to incorporate in my thesis. And so all of my research, uh, speaking for myself, was on that same subject that my thesis was going to be on. Yeah, it's sure. the only thing I applied to any conferences. It was all that one thing. And I imagine I'd feel the same way in a PhD program. I'd be like, I'm going to, for the most part, stay on this one track so I can turn it into a dissertation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, after that, then I can branch out and, you know, go wherever I want. But it's like a lot of pressure to say, you need to do this massive writing project and then also flesh out yeah. a full paper to go present in a conference. Yeah. Maybe I'm not good at multitasking, but it was too much pressure for me. <laughs> oh, I, I agree that I felt like there was a lot going on in our de degree program that was like, okay, if I'm going to finish, like... And I, I took a little bit longer than the two years, but if you were going to complete it in two years, you really kind of had to have a plan after the first semester and like, okay, what are we doing? What are we writing about? Like, but part of that also may have been, I was, I did music ed in undergrad and then wasn't a good writer before like undergrad and definitely didn't develop acad um, academic writing in undergrad kind of got through my two English classes that I needed and just moved on because it was like, okay, you're writing letters to band kids' parents. Like, it'll be okay. Just <laughs> make sure there's not a blatant spelling error and life will be okay. So jumping into the master's program where it was like, okay, we got a whole different style of writing. And it like a big part of the thesis process was not content, but editing how I was presenting ideas on other things. And so sure. for me, that was a little bit of a hangout, but yeah, yeah. that, that just, of, sorry. No, oh, it's okay. I was just gonna, that made me think of something I was just curious about. Um, the, the three of us um, actually have our bachelor's degrees in not music theory. And then we all went into the master's in music theory. And it just made me wonder, have your degrees all been on the same track or did you, do like performance and then musicology like so my my undergraduate degree um i quite consciously ended up in, in the final year it was a three-year degree um doing bits of everything so i did composition some musicology and some performance mm -hmm. so bearing in mind that very often in uk structures mm -hmm. bits of music theory or analysis will come under the kind of gate of musicology anyway right um but then my master's was music performance uh, in piano, um, especially I got to choose an area, but I specialized in, in Soviet or Russian repertoire. Um, so wow. I gave concerto performances and it was very, very lovely. And during that, I started thinking about ideas for, for, for research. Mm -hmm. I got hooked on the idea of Russian music. And then when I thought, what could a project be? Um, it very quickly emerged that, funnily enough, at that time, I didn't speak any Russian. So I'd got good grades and analysis projects. So it was, well, you could write about this music from an analytical perspective. Mm -hmm. so, well, okay. Uh, and I applied, applied for PhD programs and that's the angle I went in. And over the course of uh, studying my PhD, I, I dropped piano practice really as a daily thing and transferred that into Russian. So now performance isn't really anything I do um, mm -hmm. for that reason. Really. So, so a lot of my work since the PhD has been with Russian sources and everything like that, but it was consciously analytical for my PhD. Cool. So a strange sort of mix. <laughs> yeah, it seems, I mean, I think a lot of people that I've met 
in just the like musicology field in general, including theory there, I'd say more people than not have that mixed background. Like a lot of them are coming from performance or they, you know, didn't initially intend on, you know, narrowing in on history or theory until they were already in a degree program. And then they went and did that the next degree. And yeah, I know there's uh, with that, we had like three primary professors in our theory program for our masters and they all had different backgrounds. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, Seth and Adam, but it was like one of them used to be an engineer. Yeah, I think and he was then, a chemical engineer for yeah. 10 years or something. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, one of them um, wasn't even a music And guy then like performance, and then mm-hmm. I think Dr. Bremble is a theorist through and through. I could be wrong. Um, I think he did theory at Indiana and then continued to do theory. I don't that, remember, though. That sounds right. I think so. But yeah, like all different backgrounds and yeah, definitely different interests. Like through that, everyone had very broad specialities yeah i think it's ended up shaping for a lot of scholars if you have that kind of that kind of root it very often shapes your very ethos of what you think theory is mm-hmm. what it should do um that's not to and that's also not to generalize about people who have been sort mm-hmm. of purely theory and all of their qualifications i don't think it's any great difference but for example in my work it's it's always this kind of blend that it matters that I start with the music I'm going to write about, and then it's going to be the theory that works with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so my work isn't very often sort of, it's kind of a naive term, but for purely theoretical, I don't really often go with that um, in my work. Well, oh, that makes sense. And um, in your like, what is music analysis video, you kind of got it that, that there is subjectivity to the whole thing. There is, um, maybe more of the syntactical side of theory where it's like, okay, that is an E flat major chord. There's an E flat, there's a G <laughs> and there's a B flat. Like that, that is what it is. But then there's a lot of, okay, why was that chord important here? Why did it matter? Was there a build up to this? Like what yeah. explaining, okay, why are we talking about this? Or, kind of what we've talked about on the podcast before that there's um like what's your perspective that you're trying to explain are you yeah. trying to explain why the listener might perceive it this way or why the performer is trying to perform it a certain way or maybe trying to just get at how does this music work together which is you know like yeah i one thing I've really enjoyed going through back episodes of your podcast where you talk about music theory Reddit, where, where the most frustrating corners of music theory Reddit can be like long chains, people arguing, no, I think this is this sort of 11 <laughs> slash chord and, and long discussions about this. And um, I just find that, I mean, not your conversation. I mean, the, those kind of discussions, I mean, on that Reddit, I find, I find that very tedious. Yeah. Not because yeah. I think, not because I think there's ever really a, a solid answer. What interests me is that there's going to be lots of different ones, and that's fascinating, and that's really that's what makes it great, right? Right. Um, that, that's what I love. So exactly these kind of things of, I don't. Yes, there's, I don't know. There's a there's a lexicon thing that I I think in the UK, and I'm biased, but it's an advantage, which is the separation from theory to analysis. Which, if, if my logic here goes, that theory is yeah, the description the structure, and then the analysis is what you do with that theory to talk to us about it. Well, that's how I understand it anyway. Yeah. And 
I think some of the degree programs have both words on them here. Yeah. I think yeah. it's kind of, you know, like a master's of music and theory and analysis or some or like the course might be listed that way. But for yeah. some reason there's not a distinction of those were two different things. I mean, there's it's a very blurry line between them. It's arbitrary, right. yeah. But but it is useful to have the idea of okay, there's there's describing and then there's what next. Mm -hmm. Right. Um because a very very good I'm sure we've all read or, or heard very, very good music theory takedown and music and sorry, I'm using them interchangeably, of course. Here, um, <laughs> music theory uh, walkthroughs of pieces that are technically correct and are very, very well done and very intricate. And then, having got to the end, I then say, "Okay, what next? What? Yep. What next?" Uh, and for me, that's the sorry, that's the most beautiful analysis, and I, I really mean that word beautiful, which is what's the insight that can then come mm -hmm. about. That's what Absolutely. I'm looking for. Yeah, yeah. Well, and returning to the the pressures of like writing something and getting it published, that for me sometimes that's the hang up of like, okay, I desperately want to write an analysis of Scott Joplin's um, Bathina. It's a wonderful concert waltz, um, and you know it's got that ragtime to it, but it's in three four, and there's just there's so many things going on there. I think there's a wonderful uh, suspension of like scale degree two, and the way you know you think, okay, it should resolve to one almost immediately, and instead the next series of chords that he uses kind of highlight scale degree two and just keep it suspended to where. You almost, if you were focused on that, you could believe, okay, I don't need to go anywhere. This is the quasi-tonic. And then eventually at the piece, you resolve down to one, and it's, okay, well, what was the point of that? What what was he really accomplishing? And th there's a lot to talk about there. And then I think about the project, and it's like, but, but what am I really saying or accomplishing? Like, is somebody going to read this and then go... Okay, what was the point of telling me all of those things? And I think it is getting to that place that you were suggesting of acceptance of, okay, you can write about something, analyze it, and be perfectly happy that you just talked about the music. Uh, I, yeah, it's a really hard point of what we get towards, isn't it? It's, it's like, who do you write for when you write analysis? Mm -hmm. Right, and and the kind of first step is I write for an imagined reader, proving that I can do analysis right. <laughs> at a very simple step, right? And then it's okay. What do I then want to communicate properly to somebody? I guess I've never made it past that first. <laughs> Just to prove else I could do it. <laughs> okay, uh, there's probably a point before that where I'm writing for myself, proving that I can analyze something. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then I've made it to step two at least. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah it can be really hard and it's it's the editing the part um i mean like kofi ogawa's how we got out of analysis and back in praises the like writing of analysis and it's a written communication and it's a hard process of editing and really going through and finessing something because often we think about the sort of intellectual literally the theory behind things fine-tuning things and then thinking about how we actually communicate it is, again, through this very often through this written medium. And that's a very hard process to just sort of get our heads around. 
Yeah, because I pictured myself much of a, as a writer. And then when I got to grad school and had to do so much writing, it's like, man, this is like, this is something crazy I didn't sign up for. Like, I thought it was just going to be a lot of music stuff. And talking about them, I don't know, like, I, I knew that I would have to write things. I didn't know to the extent of which that, like, music academics and, like, music theory, music history are writers um, yeah. as, like, its own accomplished skill. And that was a surprise to me. Probably just because I didn't know very much, but it's part of the the difficult skill. anybody anybody starting any, I guess, arts, humanities, social sciences kind of degree where you, where you get used to academic language, you get used to reading mm-hmm. academic texts, and it's as you go on and you then sort of look under the hood of things and start thinking of yourself as a writer, you then more and more appreciate really good quality writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I read just generally widely around music theory and music history um, and kind of touch on stuff on the channel that um, isn't my field at all, but I enjoy this good quality writing. It's good communication. Mm-hmm. Um, and this certainly extends to, to good music theory writing, I think. Again, probably coming back to my point that people who choose to argue about definitions and labels of any particular chord, um, I, I just sort of get a bit lost really not that i'm not following their argument i'm just saying what are you what are you going to say about this Mm -hmm. sometimes i will say there are exceptions sometimes it's the fact of mislabeling confusion is the point but normally i like to celebrate that we can have multiple interpretations sure the famous one is the what, what i use in my own teachers an example is the long tradition of people trying to slap a label um on the chord that's in Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, the Augurs of Spring chord, the one that's repeated lots and mm-hmm. lots of times, yeah. about four minutes in. Um, and according to some people, this is a sort of sus-13 inversion, E major over E-flat-7. I have that tattooed somewhere, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a gorgeous chord, but there have been so many different labels. And, you know, there's an article in there somewhere of somebody going through a survey of every label put to it and why that person chose that. You could just do a proper prob- study of all the things that that court has been called. <laughs> yeah. And um, I'm even down to Adam Fort's, um PC analysis of it, which sort of said that this was the master chord that unlocked the rest of the Rider Spring. Um, whereas in my mind, I think it's just chosen because it's maximally dissonant and it sounds pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, if we want to speak intellectually, we need to go a little bit more than that. But, you know, at its essence, it's really for those reasons. But Yeah. If somebody came up with that article of surveying the different labels, that's interesting. Because just just as just as you're saying, Adam, that would be like, yeah, you could talk about all these different reasons why we have those. But if I'm just reading a sort of a Reddit thread of people disagreeing, <laughs> um, that's disappointing. <laughs> Wait, are you saying that Reddit isn't the ideal place to to learn about music theory? <laughs> Hang on, <laughs> my world has been turned upside down. It, it would explain why the master's thesis was a little hard to write when that was my go-to place instead of the library. Yeah, they just didn't like any of the citations. Citations back to Reddit threads just don't get you very far in grad school. That's um, uh, a joke, everybody. I didn't cite Reddit at all. <laughs> Only once or twice. I had to get but, rid of all of it in undergrad. <laughs> um, so speaking of you know, academic writing and the challenges of that, what um, are, do you still find challenges in doing a medium like YouTube or you find 
more of a certain freedom where, okay, I don't have to be as academically correct when I present this idea. I can speak a little more um, in layman's terms and other things like that. I ha- mm. uh, I script it, so everything is quite carefully uh scripted and edited in the kind of what's I guess has become the sort of familiar YouTube vernacular of an editing that takes out every single pause so mm-hmm. every single sentence is filmed and the gaps between them are, are, are taken out with editing so everything is very very carefully considered um, I do have citations as well and I do regularly use block quotes and things like that I guess in the presenting style it's more that you have more room for jokes it's probably closer to my teaching style and then the mm-hmm. kind of topics of videos that I've chosen has often been what kind of topics do I think are important to introduce to new music students? So I model a lot of it on my teaching. Some of it is on my research. So yeah, the kind of what is music analysis. There's another one on Shostakovich, which is a lot closer to my research. But yeah, there's a, there's a creativity that my, my language can be much more informal. Though I think... Um, I think I found my conference papers have started to to blend into this language. Um, I mean, it helps that sometimes I give conference papers on really kind of daft subjects anyway. Um, so two days ago, I was lucky enough to speak at the, the Royal Musical Association, the kind of AMS in the UK, uh, their annual conference. Uh, and I gave a talk on a, on a Soviet propaganda play that was making fun of Shostakovich, but nobody's ever really gone into detail on it, but I've got the script, I've got a recording, and it's a terrible, terrible play, like a terrible quality one, where this imaginary composer, uh, Golovin, who you could translate that as something like Mr. Know-It-All, uh, gets humiliated, but has to, has to, and it's a really poor disguise of Shostakovich. But of course, it's so silly that I wanted to, to be, be silly. So my conference paper ended up with a lot of sort of jokes and kind of ridiculous kind of almost memes or something like that. And yeah. afterwards, an audience member who's a friend said, uh, I just feel like I've sat through a 20-minute podcast, so thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like it's the opposite. My sort of academic, I don't know, maybe I've, as I've felt, as I've been in, in my job longer and I've settled, be, okay, okay, I'm here and this is what I do now. Maybe I've got more relaxed and settling into speaking to academic audiences like I would do kind of more public-facing thing. This kind of ties into something I wanted to say earlier about the... I had one more thought about the writing, but this is a good place to, like, combine the two, is that I was going to say that I think of, like... In my head, the way that I was thinking about writing was, was like, just teaching but on the page. And I said many, many times that if I could just, like, present my thesis at my defense instead of them having to read the whole thing, if I could do a seminar on it and just talk about it. And so, like... Maybe I was maybe I was off and thinking about the writing part of it, and so I think the the way that you're talking about like the doing those conference papers, like that gives more. You're saying like it had like almost more of like a teaching vibe than like an academia vibe, and I just yeah that sounds cool. I relate to that. The cool part to me is teaching. It's never been the writing. Uh, not not in the sort of teaching. I mean, my research. I I don't struggle to get words on a page. Mm-hmm. They're never very good words. Um, <laughs> so. But, uh, no, actually, they're always terrible words. So, so I write. I write with a zero draft as a concept from a few different sort of writing manuals. I think I read when I was a student, um, and that's before a first draft. The draft that is so bad I wouldn't show to another human being, um, and that's so that I have ideas and and things on the page. And honestly, my especially my PhD thesis, I had a wonderful patient supervisor, Professor David Fanning, 
who would read multiple drafts of things. And some of my chapters got to like draft eight or nine of back and forth of edits and revisions. And that's because I, I love to write quickly and then I make it better. So learning slowly to separate those two things of writing and revision and writing and editing was the, the real learning process of my PhD. When it comes to teaching, uh, I, I don't know. I, I love chatting with enthusiastic students, really. I'm very lucky in my job that we have wonderful students as well. Um, and I don't think that I very often do the kind of traditional lecture where I talk at people for two hours. I think we have a lot more of a back and forth and that's really interesting. And I try and bring some of that into onto the channel. Well, and I think that at least to the conferences I've been to, occasionally there was, you know, uh, someone who presented that I wanted to talk to and felt like, okay, they were good enough in their rapport during the lecture that I could talk to you casually about this and not necessarily feel attacked one way or the other or feel like I'm attacking them for not understanding something that they presented. But I think the podcast has helped me because there is that, okay, we can casually talk about this and all learn together. And I think I get the same vibe from your channel of it's okay to not know things. It's okay to learn something new and it's okay to talk about things that interest you, even if you don't know everything about it. Yeah, I definitely don't know everything about musicology by an extraordinarily long way. All of that is not to say that I don't value the kind of intricately written academic talks. And actually, I love that as well. It's just a different mode of communication. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't value one over the other. Um, it's, it's, I guess it's towards what I'm trying to communicate with that, that channel. It's interesting that the channel also has a YouTube page. And that YouTube page is a very different audience. <laughs> which is basically which is basically other musicologists and and that's great and that's a really vibrant uh, engagement but it's not the audience that i think i have or i want to reach on the youtube channel which really mm -hmm. is trying to be younger mm -hmm. people thinking about musicology mm -hmm. thinking about what a music degree is i think that the, really the reason i started the channel is i watch i, I watch a lot of youtube uh, and when it when it came to, to COVID and everything has to go online, my employer or some people in my department liked the kind of videos I was making. And I said, well, it would be good to see these kind of videos on YouTube. But at the moment, the only, this is a big generalization, the only kind of channels on YouTube that do topics around introducing music theory. Well, actually, no, music theory is actually quite well represented. Sorry, I'm going to take that back. <laughs> mm -hmm. The only channel that might introduce musicology are either come study with our particular university or come listen to our orchestra concerts. Mm -hmm. So there isn't that sort of non-institution linked thing. In musicology, mm -hmm. music theory, there's a tremendous amount, yeah. actually. It's extraordinary music theory YouTube, I would say. So I, I guess I'm, I'm not trying to go into that music theory YouTube as much. I'm trying to weedle out a niche, which is musicology. But because of what right, I do, there end up right. being a few mentions of music theory. Yeah. So this sort of leads into something I just wanted to run by you, which is I, I watched your, your video on um, elitism in classical music, thought it was super interesting. And it's not exactly um, the same topic that we've discussed on the podcast, but it's, it's related, which is that there is, um, it's not brand new, but this sort of emerging wave in um, the music theory field, at least here in the U.S., of 
trying to sort of rethink the way we frame our field and the way we sort of present what we do to students and even how we teach music theory and all this stuff. And mostly just to try to make it more accessible to everybody and kind of cut out a lot of the elitism, a lot of the um, like Western centric music that dominates our entire field. And then, I mean, there is also of course the discussion of the not debate but the shankirian issues that are being discussed right now and that all fits into that same puzzle i was just curious if there's a similar discussion happening in your like the broader musicology field and in the uk versus the us and whether that's something that y'all are you know experiencing over there as well oh sure yeah absolutely um especially the kind of accountability of who who is represented in our courses, mm-hmm. in our mm-hmm. research, in our teaching. Because mm-hmm. it's one thing, I think I think the big change uh, five or 10 years maybe is not just, oh, look, we've got a diverse repertoire. And really, when we look at it, that, diverse, that diversity might be, we've got two or three uh, female composers or, or composers from ethnically diverse backgrounds yeah. or something. It's not exactly enormous. Um, mm-hmm. And since then, it's it's how do we make everybody feel welcome? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so I guess from the sort of reckoning happening in music theory from from Phil Ewell's uh, paper, but just focusing on that paper that like critiquing who is music theory for, who is representative, yeah. who is made to feel welcome, and it's then we need to change things if we're then going to make everybody feel welcome or expand this, this sense of not only who is represented, but crucially who is made to feel represented as well. Absolutely, right. uh, this is happening. Um, and it's a big part of what I do, a big part of my, my teaching. Um, so it's harking back to maybe like 90s era, 80s, 90s era musicology, which, which was a group of scholars at one point critiquing the idea of that there was music that everybody had to know, that everybody had to know mm. a particular canon of music. Um, these scholars then came in and said, well, well, why is this the case? That you could maybe sidestep the idea of canon or you could maybe expand it. And these are perhaps right. different, different approaches. And I think we've come back to those, those questions really quite, quite recently, mm-hmm. since I guess, especially um, shockwaves from at least the first uh, wave of Black Lives Matter protests, sort of 2020, 20, uh, 15, 2016, and then, of course, mm-hmm. from last year, especially. Um, so it's interesting. I've been involved in lots of interesting conversations around the role of what our curriculum is of music theory, for mm-hmm. instance. So there's great resources online for, for music teachers, music theorists of, okay, how do I illustrate uh, a rounded binary piece? Mm-hmm. So there are fantastic resources of music theory examples by women, uh, diverse music theory examples, for instance, which is an easy step of... Mm-hmm. I'm going to change, consciously change my, my examples of repertoire pieces, a simple yeah. step. We're doing that. I mean, there's broader questions still, and none of this is really getting towards broad answers is the thing. The discipline is, is having these kind of reckonings, and I certainly don't have, have answers with it. Trying to do better with it, um, I'm probably more skeptical of anybody that says they do have, do have answers. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I'm witnessing change, change in like who's represented on faculty, for instance, is a mm-hmm. massive change. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, and we talked to Eric and Justin from the Score podcast and their band directors uh, out of Texas, and they talked about um, their big point was it's not a dismantling of the current system because that system helped us get to where we are, but understanding, okay, there are things we need to add into it and discussions we need to have to help change and other things because like when I was going through school and everything, it felt in a weird way that I had to write about a great composer like Beethoven because he, like, that was greatness. That's what you needed to write about and that you couldn't talk about smaller composers that might not have as large a repertoire of works. And, but when you look at it, it's like, okay, some of the magic that happens in Scott Joplin's rags is the same magic that you hear in Mozart, like, and that's part of Joplin's, mm -hmm. like, German piano teacher that he had in Missouri that he just happened upon and was teaching him similar things. And yeah, there's differences, but a lot of the melody that you hear, it's syncopated, but there's still counterpoint that's very similar as to how yeah. all of that fits together. And there's no yeah. reason not to use a Mozart example over a Joplin example when it's like, okay, yeah, it's the same form. There's, there's so many complicated questions with it. So, for example, there's like there's a long established historical discourse of of relating everything to Beethoven, um, and students need to know what that discourse is, right? Mm -hmm. um, we should be ready to critique it, but also we can't critique something we don't know. Mm -hmm. And I I've been taking and I I've got a new course starting in a couple of weeks, which is a very, very kind of traditional looking course, which is, this is a history of the 19th century and a hundred pieces of music. The idea being then in our seminar courses, we critique every idea of canon. Why is this list of pieces, which are the hundred most mentioned in, in Taruskin, Dahlhaus, Samson, why mm. is this piece all white men? So we get to yeah. know the repertoire and then you get the critical thinking. Mm -hmm. And we, we students need to be able to ha do both, I'm afraid. The reason being, if, if we didn't do that at all, um, I worry my student, my graduates could audition, I don't know, for a chair and then have never played Brahms or something like that, mm -hmm. which would be a failing of, of music education in some way, which is also not to say that you, you need this kind of hierarchy at all. I could be far more imaginative because this music still exists, even if we don't say it's the greatest, it's, it's still there. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> Right. Yeah, I, I still don't have answers. <laughs> it's ongoing. I you wrote a Twitter thread about this about yeah. this course, right? It's it's not it's not my idea. It comes from a colleague who's uh, just left. Um, but it's it's a fascinating ongoing conversation. We'll see what students make of it. Mm -hmm. I I really I read through it and I really liked the idea of both building the cannon and blowing it up at the same time because it seemed like a good way to sort of accomplish both goals of like okay here's what you're supposed to learn about. And here's the reasons why that's the only thing you've ever learned about. Like, I, th I thought that that was good at those dual purposes. Yeah. It's kind of like explaining this is what that traditional knowledge is. And this mm -hmm. is why scholars over the last 40 years have been saying this is problematic. Right. But you, you need both. And it's a good way to satisfy the people who are like, 
well, I don't want my people to not learn about Mozart or whoever. It's like, okay, well, we could talk about Mozart, and then we can also talk about the problems with Mozart and with the curriculum as well at yeah. the same time. For, for me, this is a, a really good future trend. I'm seeing this in lots of scholars, where yeah. lots of teachers especially. I think it's positive. Well, like a lot of that you touched on in the what is genius episode, right? You know, of like, okay, well, why do we think that this person is a genius, but person one town over who also wrote this amount of music in the same style isn't a genius. I mean, if I was going to revise that video, I'd probably just say, you know, where are the female geniuses in, in history? And why, why is that the case? Right. <laughs> Only Clara Schumann. Well, I mean, depending depending whose history you read, if you read Taruskin's Oxford history, she's really barely, barely mentioned, uh, for instance. But I, um, I mean, she seemed like the romantic scapegoat for a lot of like, yeah, she she's in there. We got one. She's got a one. lady. Uh, I think uh, Fanny Mendelssohn gets a little bit more mentioned. Amy Beach actually does rather well in the Taruskin, interestingly. Uh but off the top of my head, those are the three female composers actually really mentioned in that 850-page book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, which is like, so so th- it's difficult, isn't it? Because th- it's it's wonderful music. You know, Beethoven, I'm a great fan. And it's music that has enriched my life. And over history, that has enriched many people's lives. Mm-hmm. But there, there is social context of why it is received to be sort of special. Mm-hmm. Right. And maybe there is a case there are, there are other scholars who say, well, okay, go listen to, I don't know, Anton Riker, other composers writing at the same time. And, you know, there is a difference. And okay, yeah, yeah, there is. But if, if, I, if I only tell my students about these 100 pieces and that was it, there's something missing. Yeah. Yep. Well, that's why one of my favorite aspects of the whole discussion going on right now is sort of the issue of like just the accessibility of our field of being uh you know well-educated so to speak in music and that if you can make it more accessible to more types of people from more backgrounds some of the problems will slowly work themselves out um some of them some of them do take direct require direct action by the people in the field already but the more accessible the field could be you will get more variety just naturally and because if we keep the same kids learning the same music in their you know piano lessons in their band classes in their uh, junior orchestras if we get the kids playing the same music going into music degrees and it's the same kids learning the same things doing the exact same stuff over and over again the cycle just keeps going and the idea of kind of breaking the cycle is one of the things the guys on the score podcast I think discuss really well of we want to bring in all of our students into yeah. music, make it accessible for all of them so that they can bring their own interest into the field, which is something that I just, it kind of blew my mind when I started thinking about it with theory. Cause I'm like, yeah, if I could make my theory class more accessible to, or the music we study in the theory class, something that interests everybody, like, there's the chance that one out of 10 of those kids may go on to pursue theory when otherwise they wouldn't. Cause they thought it was just Bach. Yeah. Because our yeah. textbook is just Bach, that kind of stuff. But there's also the reality, which is if you take all music produced, consumed, recorded, performed in the world, somewhere around two to 3% of it is what we might call Western classical music. Mm-hmm. That's not very much music. 
Um, So unless you say that your degree is specializing in this and you write it on the piece of paper somewhere, if you then otherwise just got a degree in music, you need to, you need to embrace, you have to embrace everything else out there. Um, And also just sort of thinking about what a degree does, what, what studying does, what it should prepare you for as well. I think your, Livy, your note about sort of learning from students, like the more students we have with their interests, the, the, the faculty, they're doing their job properly, learn from them as well, I hope, yeah, is a kind absolutely. of slow process. Things still need to change and things haven't changed enough. Um, but I don't think there's sort of immediate answers with these either. So Mm-mm. I don't know. I hope I'm doing enough, but I need to change more, I think. I think stuff like getting the the content you put out on YouTube, I, I love just the more of that I see because, again, just making it accessible, making it conversational so it doesn't feel like this, going back to the elitism thing. It's not yeah. like, oh, well, I didn't take classical piano since I was five, so I can't go study music. Um, yeah. Making in- people realize that oh, well, what he just said makes sense to me. Like, I could probably have a conversation with someone about that and yeah. just yeah. kind of work I your mean, way in. It's also the, the the knowledge in the room. I've got students who can, like, build their own guitar. Mm-hmm. I can't do that. Yeah. I've got no idea how to do that. And that's extraordinary that they can do that. Um, and I, I want to hear about that. You know, so many students who, from their, like, bedroom, can sequence an entire, like, trance album. Again, I can't do that. That's incredible. Um, and it's yeah and it's this sort of particular specialism of knowledge and having room for all of these i think really mm-hmm. allowing room um what? for them so yeah I've, I've chatted with some some people about yeah this one of i need to have music can be really difficult for for people starting a course because there's a perception that you need to have studied it for so long before yeah. starting a higher course and we were saying you know what if we change things so that you don't have to have ever done performance and you just Mm. come study music history theory critical thinking about different aspects of music around the world what if we open that up as a pathway and again i don't think that's a sort of uh easy fix for for any kind of these questions but that's another pathway it's another trying to to make people feel welcome as well absolutely yeah you could start with our classrooms but it's going to take a lot of dismantling to get it on in a an entire like you know school school wide or anything like that but sure yeah yeah and um recently we talked to my friend ad who's a dj and just talked to her about okay how do you go through everything that you have to do to be successful at that and even though i don't think she was aware there's a very elaborate mental process that she went through to do the performances that she does that's both historical as well as like improvisation in the moment of okay mm. i have these 10 songs ready to go how do i fit them all together what's going to be the right thing how do i transition from one song to the next that at least for me i wasn't immediately thinking of course they go through that you know and so just and also i just got to say her internal sense uh, like her internal metronome is insane like because we we kept throwing out songs at her uh just like because it was just like a little game in the moment of here's a song how would we transition out of that or whatever and she was like yeah that's like 133 or something like it was insane and she was like spot on i was like dang how do you do that 
That's it. I wonder if, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's a technical name, perfect rhythm or something like that. That's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. I was like, that's mind blowing. But of course you have to be able to do that. Like you were saying, Seth, like once you realize that she could do that, you're like, oh, duh, that makes sense. You're a DJ. You have to be able to do that. But it was crazy. But yeah. I think on, on this sort of expanding accessibility, one thing I try and tell my students um, and I probably get into the end of that, either genius or the other one about elitism, is just that if if the list of things that we use as examples, we can change that list anytime we want, mm-hmm. basically. And that should be empowering to anybody interested in this. Right. Um, if, if you're fascinated in any genre, any composer, any area, go go do what you can to promote it persuade it especially get it performed recorded listeners can hear it um it can change and it will if if you just look historically like Mahler was sort of shunned for decades even before that things like Bach but my, my PhD was on a relatively unknown composer Weinberg he then kind of had his moment and sort of then became much more widely performed but that was thanks to a couple of musicologists including my supervisor but also lots of performers kind of expanding this horizon of who do we play and why and if you think about that as a list that we can change, that that just goes out the window in some ways. Mm-hmm. It has been a lovely chat. I unfortunately have to run <laughs> to go sell hot dogs to people. Um, thank you so much, Dan, for stopping by. Oh, with my us. pleasure. Um, if you guys haven't already, please go check out his YouTube channel, Cult of Musicology. Uh, it's really enjoyable, and he's got more work on the way. Thanks so much. I've really enjoyed this. I will be checking in with more of your podcasts. Thank you so much. That was great. Thanks, Dan.